0: Hello and welcome to your most obedient and humble servant. This is a women's history podcast where we feature 18th and early 19th century women's letters that don't get as much attention as we think they should. I'm your host, Katherine Garrett. I'm very excited this week to be joined by Dr. Natasha Simonova. She is a fellow and lecturer in English at Exeter College, University of Oxford. She is at the moment working on a book about the 18th century correspondence of Jemima and Amabel Gray. I discovered Natasha through her sparkling Twitter presence, which has been very fun to follow. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. First of all, can you tell me a little bit about your research background and how you got into looking into women's correspondence?
1: I study English literature across the very long 18th century, and I'm especially interested in fiction. And I've always been particularly focused on texts that haven't been an established part of the literary canon including writing in manuscript and writings by women, because I think that those can give us a different perspective on literary history. And they show how often the act of writing is social and collaborative, that it's not just about the creation of these texts, but the way that they fit within the writers' lives and relationships. And letters are the perfect example of that, because they're both used for ephemeral communication, and they can often be literary as well. This is the great age of the epistillary novel. Many people were very conscious and deliberately crafting and then preserving their letters so that they could be read again
0: long after the fact. In your opinion, do you think a lot of women were writing letters and diaries with the intention for them to at least at some point become public documents? Uh, probably not
1: all of them. But the set that I'm looking at in particular, perhaps not public documents as such, But they had a sense of preserving them for posterity, whatever that meant for them.
0: Gotcha. So speaking of the text you're working on at the moment, who were the Gray family and how did you find these letters?
1: They are an aristocratic family and they were particularly committed to preserving their papers. So there's tens and maybe hundreds of thousands of these letters that cover more than a century. And they kept them all very neatly organized and eventually... A lot of it was donated to the local county archives in the town of Bedford, where they make up the Lucas Papers. And then a lot of the men's letters are in the British Library. I first came across them when I was doing some work on the reception of older romances in the 18th century. And it was one of those cases of research serendipity because I was at a seminar in Oxford and a PhD student happened to mention that there were these women in this collection who talked about reading and writing romances. So I thought I would take a quick trip to Bedford and have a look. And I found that they did talk extensively about the reading, but also a lot more. And I was really staggered by the size and the breadth of material in this collection.
0: My background is working on the Martha Washington papers, and that's way more than we have like 200 letters from Martha Washington. So it's it's fantastic that you have this archive.
1: I know. Every time someone describes having a lot of letters from a particular correspondence and it's about a hundred.
0: <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's
1: sick. Yes. Whereas I have sets of, you know, 400, 600. They lived very long lives and they were very
0: prolific. You were looking into how they wrote about romances and even wrote some romances. What about these letters made you want to really turn this into a book? So it's a
1: huge resource for studying 18th century women's intellectual lives. It includes their opinions on everything from theater and art and fashion to politics and military campaigns. So it's very wide ranging. And obviously, there have been some scholars that have looked at this material before, but necessarily only scratching the surface. You'd have to be mad to try and read through all of it, (laughs) as (laughs) I'm currently doing. But I was just really drawn to how warm and humorous so much of the writing is. Even though these were aristocrats living very different lives from us in the middle of the 18th century, you still get this really vivid sense of their daily concerns and their relationships, and a lot of it is
0: surprisingly familiar,
1: so I wanted to be able to tell that story. That's what we do here at
0: Your Most Obedient and Humble Servant. The particular letter that we're going to focus on today is from Jemima Gray and her two daughters in one letter, which is unusual. Can you give a quick introduction to who they are?
1: Jemima was the granddaughter of the Duke of Kent, and when she was born, she was initially a fairly minor aristocrat, but eventually she would become her grandfather's heir. In 1740, when she was 17, she inherited his estate at Rest Park in Bedfordshire, and she had the title of Marchioness Grey in her own right. That meant that when she eventually had daughters who would go on to inherit from her, they actually had to take her name instead of their father's by act of parliament. At the same time that she became Marchioness Gray, she was married to a man named Philip York, whose father was then the Lord Chancellor of England. And the two of them had a lot of shared interests in literature and history and poetry. So under their ownership, Rest would become the center of this really lively mixed-gender coterie that was made up of Jemima's childhood friends, and Philip's many siblings and his Cambridge associates. All of them would meet up there and they would write letters and poems and have private jokes that they shared with each other. And when Jemima and Philip had their two girls, this was the kind of learned and witty and politically engaged atmosphere that they would grow up with. The eldest was Lady Amabel Gray. She was born in 1751 and she was known as Belle. And her sister, Lady Mary Gray, was five years younger. And for whatever reason, the family would call her Mouse. Oh. And that was a nickname that would stick with her, even up until she was an adult. There's a letter where Jemima describes going to visit her when Mouse has just had a baby. And she talks about the great mouse and the little Dormouse. Oh, <laughs> that was a slightly more serious intellectual one. And Mouse... Like to run around and ride horses, and she apparently had a very infectious laugh when she started. She couldn't stop. At a later point, Horace Walpole has this quite bitchy letter where he describes mouse talking like a human being and not like her sister or a college tutor. <laughs> so that gives a good sense of what Belle was like in conversation,
0: I think. Oh my gosh. <laughs> As an American, I'm not very familiar with British aristocracy and rules like that. Are these people that would have been sort of politically influential, that people really would have known who these people were? Or sort of are people aware of the Grey family in British history today?
1: It's interesting because on one hand, they are quite high up in the aristocracy by her title. So they have to participate in a lot of public events like the King's coronation and royal weddings and court, which they seem to see as a massive chore. The interesting thing about court in the 18th century is that everyone involved seems to absolutely hate it, yet they keep doing it. It's very emblematic of a British society, I think. So they do a lot of that. On the other hand, they see themselves as very separate from what is described as the Beaumont or the kind of the high society of the time, which is seen as a bit more frivolous and more morally suspect and intellectually superficial. Mm. And so they're very careful to set themselves apart from those people. Someone like the Duchess of Devonshire is someone that they would encounter casually in society, but isn't someone that they'd want to be intimate with. They very much have their own circle of, you know, more seriously minded people. But the Yorks, who are her husband's family, are very politically involved. And they're often referred to as the House of York because there were a number of brothers who went into public life in various ways. They are often mentioned in British history for their political role and their involvement in Whig politics. But the reason why my book is called The Grey Ladies, is because they do have this slightly shadowy presence. On one hand, they are well known and they're often mentioned. On the other hand, so much of what makes them interesting is this kind of private intellectual life that they have that they don't want to share with other people necessarily.
0: In this letter from Jemima and her two daughters, who are they writing to?
1: They are writing to Catherine Talbot, who was a very close childhood friend of Jemima's. In their teenage years, they bonded over a love of books and they continued writing to each other throughout their lives. So Catherine Talbot is someone that people studying in the 18th century might've heard of. She was a very prolific and accomplished writer, particularly on religious and moral topics. Although again, she never wanted to publish her works while she was alive. After her death, they were printed by her blue stocking friend, Elizabeth Carter, Mm. and her and Carter's letters would eventually be published as well. At this point, Catherine was living with her mother and her guardian, Thomas Secker, who had become the Archbishop of Canterbury. That's why they're based at Lambeth Palace in London. Catherine Talbot never married, but Jemima's daughters, and particularly Belle, were like honorary nieces to her. And she definitely enjoyed guiding and instructing them as they grew up. So Belle would reminisce about how when she was little, Catherine would allow me a corner of your chair and listen to my childish prattle. Unfortunately, Catherine would go on to die of cancer when Belle was 19. But you can tell that she was a really formative influence on her. And Belle would often reread the letters between Catherine and her mother in later years. And she would even produce a manuscript edition of them in the 1800s. Wow. This is a few years or soon after they moved to Lambeth. So that's why there's all these references to her working in the gardens and getting them set up. This wasn't something that she wanted particularly, but she had to go wherever Secker went. Mm. So they would have much preferred to stay at Cuddesdon, which was where they lived when he was Bishop of Oxford, kind of on the outskirts of Oxford. And they saw that as this really lovely country paradise.
0: Now they had to move to Lambeth, which is in London. And it's just not as nice. Setting up the context of the exact time of this letter, what's going on in their lives?
1: So this letter is from 1765, when Belle would have been 14 and Mouse was nine. Their mother and Catherine Talbot were in their early 40s. A few years before this, a Mouse had begun to suffer from asthma. So don't worry, she will be fine. But they would send her to Brighthamstone, which is now Brighton. In the summers, so that she could have the sea air and sea bathing, which was believed to be good for the lungs. It meant that she also got to practice writing letters to her parents. At the point when they're writing this letter, she has just returned from there and she's rejoining her family at their other country estate of Wimpole, which is near Cambridge. And then they're all going to head to London for the winter season. They're writing to Catherine to update her on NASA's arrival. And what they've all
0: been up to. All right. I think that's perfect setting up. We're going to move into actually reading the letter. And I'm very excited because usually it's just me or my guest reading the letter. But because of the nature of this one, where it's multiple people writing different sections, and two of them being children, I actually asked special guests to come in and help me record it. So a huge thanks to Gudrun and Imogen Campbell, who stepped in to read the parts for Mouse and Bell. I'm also going to give some credit to their mother, Elizabeth Stark, who recorded the audio and sent it to me, and I'm sure provided some expert direction, so thank you very much for helping out with this. So, now to the letter.
2: Wimple, November the 15th, 1765. Dear Miss Talbot, my conscience has smote me that I've owed you a letter this one, and I am now set down to thank you for that and the kind visits you made me in London. Mouse, my dear Miss Talbot, may send you a letter full of apologies for her idleness, but though I am not guilty of that offence and the debt does not lie on my side, I could not neglect this opportunity of writing to you. Unfortunately, I have really not one single subject to entertain you with and never yet could learn the art of making one or writing without any. Indeed, this defect will so plainly appear that at any other time I should be afraid you would suspect me of the interested view of sending you half a dozen dull lines in hopes of receiving some pages better filled in exchange. But, as we shall so soon be able to converse in an easier and better way than by pen and ink, you will rather, I believe, accuse me of importunity than call my disinterestedness in question. I was very much surprised when I waked on Friday morning, to that I was to go to Wimpole, and could scarcely believe it. The day proved very fine for my journey. I arrived about five o'clock, and found Papa, Mama, and Sister very well, and very glad to see me. I thought Sister had very much grown, as did she me. Papa would fain to have had me think Mama had grown, but I, mean, I could not.
3: What pity tis Mama should not grow as fast as her aspiring daughters, one of whom has far out-topped her already and the other is doing all she can for it. But she comforts herself with the proverb about ill weeds. Our stay here will
2: not be later than next Monday, but as the weather seems almost to have an intermitting disorder, we, i.e. sister and I, may politely catch the interval of health and go a day or two before. I assure you, if it was not for seeing you and the rest of my good friends in town, I should be rather sorry than glad to leave the country, which is still very pleasant. The leaves, though almost turned foie mort, are still on, and serve to hide the brown and naked branches. The birds hop about and still chirp now and then, the berries are in their greatest beauty, and the air not being loaded with any more smoke than serves sometimes to make a cottage look picturesque among the trees, is much pleasanter, purer, and clearer than St. James's Square or begging your pardon lambeth i have not seen so much company here as in my room last week nor no horse of any kind to ride upon or to teach Miss talbot the art of trotting. i find this place very different than brythelblestone and much pleasanter i have been out twice and walked in and before the greenhouse to which i hear you have been invited and tagged walked with me i am afraid mr costum's landscapes will be gone before we come back i am much obliged to you for your repeated invitations to come and admire them and I assure you, had I possessed Aladdin's lamp, I should have made the genie some day, or other, transport us all to Lambeth. Though I think, I could have found out a better employment for him, too. He should have brought you one morning. You might have walked about the place and been carried back by dinner time, before the archbishop, Mrs. Talbot, your nurse, your cat, or any person or thing in the family had missed you. You will wonder, whiz, put the Arabian tales so much in my head. But Mouse has been reading them at Breithelmstone, and brought one volume of them here, which to my shame I own. I took up and studied with as much pleasure and attention as when I first read them at a younger age than her. Talking of Arabian tales puts me in mind of a story of a very different nature, not so much for its merit as for its tragicalness. Mine, I mean, which is finished, and which indeed I have cruelly made as deep as I could. But I will not say anything more about it, as it is now ready for you to read or sleep over, whenever you are so good as to be troubled with it. After this échantillon of the important intelligence and information you must expect from me, at a time when, for aught we know, the town may be full of real news, you will, I dare say, easily excuse an abrupt conclusion. I leave it to Sister's share to tell you about Tag, who has again become a domicilier of her apartment. There's not much to be said about Tag's history, but ask if you shall one another kitten soon, and beg your advice on how I may keep peace between her and Tom when they meet. I join Miss Sister in wishing that Aladdin's in would convey Miss Talbot hither. And I suppose she has been possessed of it herself this summer, to have made so many alterations and buildings in the garden at Lambeth, in so short time. I hope to by them soon, and beg you will shoot me the old lamp in a corner. But we won't set to rub it, in fear we shall see an ugly
3: genie. You may judge by this medley, my dear Miss Talbot, that we are all well, in spite of the weather which has continued for three days most discouragingly bad and must have appeared in and about London as true November fogs. I hope it will mend again and give us some good days before and for our journey. I'm told there is an accusation against me gone by yesterday's post which I can't but plead guilty to. All I can say to lessen the offense is that having indiscreetly, I cannot say inadvertently, broke the seal. I stopped upon finding my mistake and did not push my indiscretion so far as to read the contents. Then pray, says the casuist at my elbow, where is the offense? That I must leave to the determination of the parties injured. But if they are not very placable or disposed to be civil, I believe I must mount the great horse on my side and say that I know no right they have to send secret letters or be offended at my opening them. However, as I must make up matters and go on as well as I can with one of the parties at home, And should be sorry to meet the other and quarrel with her. I desire all past offenses may be canceled, and as we may end our summer's correspondence and begin our winter's visits with mutual harmony and goodwill. And so we remain, dear Miss Talbot, yours
1: to command. Mama Bell Mouse Witness
0: Tag. This is just such a cute letter. I might put an image of one of the letters on the website when I post this, because then you can see the sort of childlike different stages of handwriting and how fabulous the handwriting is compared to how most people can write today. (laughs) It gives you the image of just a family sitting around and passing a sheet of manuscript paper back and forth and writing their little sections and building off of what other people have written. Let's go in sort of section by section. I like the very sweet opening from Mouse with her conscience having smote her. And then her sister comes in with a little bit wordier and she says, I have not one single subject to entertain. Sort of made me think about how, I mean, you had to write anyway, even if you didn't have a single subject to entertain. And do you think that's part of the reason why some of these letters are so funny is because women keeping up this type of sort of aristocratic correspondence were really trying to entertain one another?
1: Uh, Yes, I think so. There are so many letters, partly because they would try to queue up this regular schedule of correspondence when they couldn't see each other. So the family members would often take turns and they would write each other on a set day once a week. And here Mouse is apologizing for not having written to Catherine that month. So it's a bit like, you know, how I have Zoom with my parents every week. They have to say something, but there is a common disclaimer of not having anything to write about. It doesn't seem to stop them from writing quite long letters. They would fill up somehow. And yes, he would try to be entertaining because it's a way of forging that connection with the other person. Also, because they might get passed around to other people that you know, particularly in this case, and particularly for Belle, I think, Catherine is someone who she wants to impress with her writing. You know, she admires her and her writing ability a great deal. She's kind of a mentor to her. So she's definitely trying to kind of show off some of these rhetorical flourishes and little bits of French that she sprinkles in. What we see in a lot of these early letters are the girls learning how to do that. There are some really funny ones from Mouse when she's about seven, when she's first sent to Brighton Stone. And she's trying so hard to write to her parents. And she says, Papa, I'm sorry for this dull letter, but I told sister this place does not afford news. And it's just really funny to think of a seven-year-old saying that.
0: (laughs) What kind of news was she expecting to pick up? (laughs) How old is she in this one again? She's nine. She's nine. Okay. <laughs> this place does not afford news.
1: <laughs> and then P.S. Today I saw for the first time a rainbow. So <laughs> those are the kind of events that she's recording. it's definitely a challenge when she's first getting started. There's a letter where Jemima is writing to Belle, who says that Mouse has been struggling to finish a letter to them. And this is, I think, when she's about six or seven. And Jemina says, your sister need not be puzzled about writing to me. She has nothing to do but write down whatever she would tell me if I was with her. I only desire it may be all her own, and you may assure her that writing is the same thing as conversation, and she may tell me in one way whatever she would in the other. But there's a focus on style as well as content. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: As I said, Belle tends to be very self-conscious about this. At one point, she apologizes for including... A whole unmusical paragraph of that <laughs> and you know she talks about the weather having an intermitting disorder and when her sister starts writing she has these quite judgmental comments about her sister's writing she says the hand I think pretty good and as for the style I believe I used to write worse at her age and she's only about you know 12 or 13 when she's saying this so it's funny to think of her thinking that she's so adult and mature
0: I get that impression from Belle from this letter Yeah. She seems quite mature and self-aware about her writing style. So it's very fun.
1: And I think that's one of the benefits of having a little sister is that you always feel
0: more grown up by comparison. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's very much like my relationship with my older sister.
1: <laughs> oh, I'm the older sister, but yes.
0: <laughs> I like that you mentioned a Zoom call because I also have a weekly Zoom call with my mom and that like, clicks in. That's exactly what this is like. We have many weeks where it just turns into us talking about like television shows that we've watched that week.
1: Yes. News and then updates on the cats. (laughs) That's one of the reasons why reading these letters feels very familiar. You can see
0: exactly what they're doing. You had the quote about how letters could be conversational. Mm -hmm. Were men taught to write letters in a conversational way or was there more of like a style that they were intended to follow? I know there was a shift in the 1700s very full of flourishes, rhetorical style in letters Mm -hmm. that sort of began to move away throughout the long 18th century. Did women of this class, were they taught that type of flourish?
1: I think there is a difference between business letters and what were called familiar letters. Men would often write business letters and sometimes women as well. But these are an example of familiar letters where the point isn't necessarily to communicate information primarily, but to keep up a relationship. Mm. these are also the kinds of letters that form the basis for the epistolary novel so there's a bit in Richardson's Clarissa where they talk about how women are naturally superior at the familiar style that they have this ability to write kind of elegantly in this particular form mm. and of course Clarissa is the paragon of that as she is so much else and this is a novel that these women read and you know Catherine Talbot was a close associate of Richardson. There's a lot of interplay between what they were doing in real life and what the fictional heroines were doing in the novel. So I think they would have agreed with the idea that there's something about that particular familiar style that women cultivate. There are also huge fans of Madame de Sévigné, who is a 17th century French aristocratic writer whose letters to her daughter were published and were really popular. They often use her as an example for you know, how to write elegantly, and they often refer to her. And I think it's significant that that model is of a mother-daughter relationship, that that's a model that they can use for their own lives as well. I like
0: Mouse's joke about everyone <laughs> having grown except mama. <laughs> Was Jemima very short? Is that a little joke about that? I included a link to a kind of a
1: paper cutout picture of the whole family when the girls were teenagers. She does look quite small, relatively, in that, even though she's sitting down. And there are also a lot of jokes in all of the letters about her being light as a bird and not eating anything. She seems to have been quite a little person. And she also jokes about Belle being her tall daughter around the same time. So I think she must have shot up quite quickly.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that one just made me
1: laugh. It's the fact that Papa tried to convince the little girl that Mama had grown as well. and <laughs> She's like, oh, I was not convinced.
0: <laughs> Some of Bill's paragraphs where she says, the weather has an intermitting disorder. Very cute. Mm-hmm. But then she goes on a really good paragraph of describing nature. Mm-hmm. What do you think of that?
1: So that's the kind of thing that was often included in letters. As I said, it's not really informational, but it's often used to kind of pad out to talk about uh, what the weather is like, what you can see around yourself as you're writing. It kind of sets the scene. It's what they call patty naughty or small talk. And it's kind of, it's purely there to create a connection. Particularly when they say, oh, I'm writing this at my window and I can see the roses outside. It kind of, it puts you there with the writer. And it's also a way to kind of flex your descriptive abilities that Belle is doing. Because yes, the weather and the scenery are always going to be more or less similar, but you want to be able to describe it as well as possible, particularly since what they couldn't do was take photos of everything they saw. Right. Either written descriptions or sketches are a way to kind of help people see what you're seeing and and share your experience that way.
0: It's almost like an Instagram post. (laughs) (laughs) You're just describing it. She does a great job. You can see her just practicing again sort of relatable of, I remember being in my early teens and practicing writing and then looking back on things I've written and being very embarrassed about it, but she's really working on it. And then all of the discussion of Aladdin, I thought that was so cute. Were Arabian Nights, sort of like standard reading at this time. They're
1: translated into English at the beginning of the 18th century, and I think they were really popular. And certainly the girls and the older generation of women definitely enjoyed a lot of romances and fairy tales of that sort. And they would write their own oriental tales, as they were called, as well. They also really loved Don Quixit. It's interesting, though, that in this letter, Belle is so shamed of having picked them up and liking them now. So she's at the age where she wants to seem really grown up and really refined. And that's something that she actually grows up out of when she's older. So she does a lot of fairy tale translation and writing when she's in her late 20s and early 30s.
0: She says she's working on her own book. Yes. I have cruelly made as deep as I could. (laughs) Do we know anything about that? Initially, when I read this, I thought it might
1: have been the story that she wrote about Samiramis, which she also describes as being very tragical. (laughs) But I know that she finished that one when she was 12. So by this point, it's probably something else. So just goes to show that she was constantly writing things and sharing them with her family and with Catherine for feedback. And she wants Catherine to have a look at this particular one when they will be in London. That's something that she continued doing throughout her life. So she was a very active writer in multiple genres. Uh, She published several books anonymously. Hmm. And she kept 37 volumes of diaries, which are now in the West Yorkshire archives. So I have a lot of manuscripts by her, but not these early ones. So I don't know if she kept them. She didn't note in her diary where she has a kind of timeline of her life. She puts in little notes when she finished particular things. Is how I know that she wrote the story about Sanerimus when she was 12.
0: Wow. She was teased. <laughs> what was the line that you said? College tutor. <laughs> yes, <laughs> like a college tutor. It seems like that started early if you're going to trust these letters.
1: Yes, definitely. She loved reading and she was kind of trying to be, you know, she was always being told by her mother and by Catherine Talbot that, you know, you have all of these opportunities, you have to make the most of them to improve yourself. So she writes some quite serious, slightly pompous sounding letters to Catherine Talbot, where she is kind of exploring what it means to improve yourself and how she's going to do that. This correspondence, I believe, is used by Catherine Talbot as the basis for the dialogues on education that she ends up publishing, Uh, well, she doesn't end up publishing them. Elizabeth Carter ends up publishing them after her death. Hmm. But they kind of draw on this exchange with a teenage girl that she's trying to mentor to think through what it means to kind of
0: educate yourself and try to be a better person. And then, of course, there's the mention of Tag the Cat. (laughs) I definitely would be wanting to write about cats at this time.
1: Yes. It's one of Mouse's favorite subjects. She loves cats. She loves dogs. She loves horses. Belle loves all of those except for horses. She says that she respects them too much to ride them.
0: <laughs> I love that.
1: One of the things they tease her for is that she is kind of the coward of the family, whereas Mouse is the one who's much more gung-ho.
0: <laughs> that's a great way to put that. <laughs> and maybe that's why they call her Mouse. I don't know. But and she attracts cats wherever she goes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> She's always picking up kittens.
1: So the previous year, when they went down to Brighton, she made her mother buy a kitten at an inn while they were on their way. And I think this might be Tag. So they bought this kitten and uh the kitten immediately threw up in their carriage. Or as Mouse puts it, a sad accident followed. <laughs> and the other thing I love about this letter is that when she is invited to tell Catherine Tag's history. The upshot of it is that soon there will be more kittens for Catherine to take off their hands. Oh my gosh,
0: (laughs) that's so cute.
1: (laughs) And they have so many animals over the course of their lives, and they're referred to so much in letters. Later on, they have this terrible black cat called Dick, who doesn't like anybody. And then they have one called Spot, who breaks in while they're trying to write letters. (laughs) So you just get a really vivid sense of all of these animals and how much they love them.
0: I can't imagine trying to write a letter with a quill pen with a cat in the room.
1: Yes, there's one by Amabel where she says that, you know, Dick had to come and sit on my lap. So I'm writing this letter kind of, but he makes a very bad desk. So I who's often trying to fight with my cat in the way. That was
0: another very relatable moment. And then they had Peg sign the letter as a witness. That was... (laughs) Yes, I think Mouse insisted on that. That's adorable. (laughs) Now, the last section of the letter, I was interested. Jemima mentioned something about opening someone else's mail. And Mm -hmm. she's, again, very joking tone. But do you know anything about whose mail that she accidentally opened?
1: So from the context, I think this is probably a reference to Belle corresponding with Catherine. And Jemima might have accidentally opened one of Catherine's letters that was intended for Belle. Okay. That's why she says that she has to live with one of them at home and she doesn't want to meet the other one in London to quarrel with her.
0: Okay. Okay.
1: Or else it's Catherine and another member of the family, but I think it's probably Belle. And it shows how these letters were circulating within that family environment. So they're never completely 100% private. Anyone might see a letter lying around on the table or asked to read it. And of course we see that in, the, in what they call the medley letter itself. It was common to write to several correspondents jointly and for people to add sections to each other's letters. So altogether it's a bit like having a family group chat I would say. And there's a letter a few years later from Belle to Catherine where she says, if I mistake not, the like happened last year or whatever time it was that all three wrote a letter together. Mouse confesses that you have reason in your turn to complain of her and that she ought as before to go halves, at least in this letter. So it's something that they remember doing. And I think it's quite a nice memory, all of them sitting together and passing this around. But at the same time, as Jemima's joking about why would they have secret letters to each other, she does leave them the space to develop that relationship between themselves as mentor and protege, and that was clearly really
0: important to them. Part of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast was I saw that there is sort of a intention in a lot of letters at this time for them to be read by more than just one person. It is like family communication, a lot of times trying to be entertaining, things like that. I noticed that a lot in Thomas Jefferson's family. So, yeah, it seems like this all sort of backs up that concept. But then there were still private letters, individual letters. There's a really funny
1: one. When she's a bit older, Belle is doing this massive co-writing project with her cousin, Mary Gregory. And so they exchange a lot of letters on that. And one of the Mary Gregory marks for private perusal. And Belle says that that note made everyone stare and wonder (laughs) what what secrets are being exchanged. (laughs) But all it was is that it was about their writing project. So they weren't yet at the stage that they wanted to share it with everybody.
3: Oh, (laughs)
1: I do like that it addresses some of that tension or the difference between interacting in person and interacting by letter. You know, that fantasy of having Aladdin's lamp and being able to bring Catherine Talbot to visit them and then to send her back to London again before anyone misses her. That sense of trying to bridge the distance. Mm -hmm. And that's something they mention a lot, particularly in reference to the Arabian tales. They often talk about, oh, I wish I had a magic carpet so that I could bring you here to Scotland and we could see each other. And in a way, the letters become kind of an equivalent of that magic, that they can send them back and forth and feel like they are sort of together. But of course, it's not the same. So I think there's a line where Bell talks about how we will soon be able to converse in an easier and better way than by pen and ink. So there's a sense in which, you know, you can't, there's no replacement for in-person conversation, which is something that we've probably found over the last couple of years as well.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining me. This is such a delightful letter. I was so excited to get this one. You're at a Twitter for people to follow you. Is that Philistella. Anything else that you want to mention? My book, The Great Ladies,
1: will hopefully be out in the next... Several years, (laughs) 10,000
0: more letters. (laughs) So just keep that one on the back burner, but (laughs) I'm very excited. This is going to be fabulous. (laughs) Thank you. For my listeners, I will put links to some of these pictures we've been talking about, links to the handwriting in the show notes. Thank you very much for listening. I am, as ever, your most obedient and humble servant. Thank you very much.
2: Your Most Obedient and Humble Servant is a production of R2 Studios.